This episode of Eat the Rules is brought to you by You on Fire. You on Fire is the online group coaching program that I run that gives you a step-by-step way of building up your self-worth beyond your appearance. With personalized coaching from me, incredible community support, and lifetime access to the program so that you can get free from body shame and live life on your own terms. Get details on what's included and sign up for the next cycle at summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I'd love to have you in that group. This is Eat the Rules, a podcast about body image, self-worth, anti-dieting, and intersectional feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So pumped to be here. I know. I'm excited to have you here too, because as I was saying, I have been in a relationship with the same person for almost 18 years. So the, you know, giving advice around, you know, living a lot like a life being single and just navigating all that stuff is, is just, I have no expertise on that at the moment. So I'm so glad to have you here. And I think that you wrote like such an important book and I'm excited to, dive into it with you and and get to all that. But before we do that, I'd love for you to just tell our listeners just a little bit about like what your relationship with your body was like when you were growing up. You know, growing up, I never really had, I think, any pivotal moments where I was like super dissatisfied with my body. I was always the bigger of my friend group, but it never really seemed like the sticking point with I guess things in life. Um, but I was, I was aware of my size. Like I wasn't like, we can all wear the same clothes because we're not all wearing the same clothes. I think it really came to the forefront when I was in college years. And that's when I started learning more about, you know, body positivity and inclusivity and like seeing what kind of media I was consuming and realizing that like, I need to curate my social media. So back then it was like Facebook and like Instagram was pretty, pretty new. And I was trying to be mindful of like, okay, what am I like reinforcing in my head? Because then it was, you know, all the hype to be a certain kind of look. And it was like, well, I'm never going to look like that. So do I just live my life like being dissatisfied or just, you know, striving for something that's just not going to physically be attainable? Or do I try to reframe how I'm looking at myself and see if I can find happiness there? And of course, it's a very long journey, even still to this day. I wake up some days and I'm like, nice, looking fine. And some days I'm like, oh, no, (laughs) looking kind of rough. And I know that that is normal and that's okay. Um, That doesn't get me down. But this is a lifelong journey. You don't just suddenly wake up one day being like, I love my body. I love everything about myself. Like everything's great. It's a total journey. And it's a lot of unlearning that I had to do along the way too. Once I became like aware of what was going on around me. So I was going through life in a fog, I guess. And then realizing that, wow, you know, all kinds of bodies and shapes are good. And you can have happiness with those. Hmm. Yeah. And you, I mean, you must see this really intersect with the work that you do, because I find that 
you know, Pete, the way that people feel about their bodies really influences like their comfort level with being even be, you know, with being single or with finding a relationship. So you, I'm, I'm sure you sort of like see, see those patterns and how, um, like the cultural messages that we've received around like our bodies and attractiveness and how we're supposed to, you know, view ourselves through like the male gaze, how that's really influenced like our comfort level with either being alone or seeking out a relationship. Yeah, 100%. In my day job, I and during school year, <laughs> I speak on college campuses. And there's actually research that suggests that, you know, body image plays a huge role, even in how you show up in the classroom or your friend relationship. So dating aside, just how you live your day to day life, it's really impactful. So I think the more we have positive messaging around bodies, the more people will feel comfortable to show up in those spaces as their authentic self adding a whole new layer of dating on for sure people don't feel comfortable in their bodies because now they're almost trying to not sell yourself to someone but you want to put your best foot forward but if you don't feel like you have a best foot that's really hard to show up as your authentic self when it comes to meeting someone else. So 100% body image definitely plays into the dating game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll kind of like, th- this will tie into some of the stuff that I wanted to talk to you about. But I'm so curious, like, how did you g- get into this line of work? You know, I had a lot of sex. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I usually tell people in the beginning. I'm like, well, I had a lot of sex. I think the new requirements, like a thousand people. And they're like, oh, okay, go on. I'm like, no, what? <laughs> I was I was always that friend you went to um, growing up that you would ask like sex questions about because I was the one who's always, you know, nose deep in books learning about puberty and changing bodies and stuff. And of course, as we grew up from middle school to high school to college, undergrad to graduate school that, you know, progressed into, you know, hand jobs and fingering into like, how do we negotiate a threesome? So <laughs> I was always that go to friend and I was super good at like life sciences in high school. So I was like, OK. I'll take this, you know, get a real job and I'll go pursue a medical degree in undergrad. And if you read the book, you know, that didn't work out (laughs) because I can't do chemistry. So I was kind of like, lost in a drift, like just wondering what I was going to do with this biology degree. But I mean, still all the while I was that go-to friend. So I was just like, okay, you know, I'm reading Cosmo and I saw the word sexologist like consciously for the first time. And I was like, oh my God, like this is a job. (laughs) And so I looked up, you know, graduate schools that offered degrees in human sexuality and I found one and it was like one of the few at the time in the country that offered those degrees and so I went there and it was like literally the perfect match so a very roundabout twisty up and down way (laughs) led me to ultimately the destiny of me being a sexologist. Yeah. So like, were your parents really open about this stuff or, because I find, and maybe it's just like my, my more, I mean, I, I think it still exists actually, but you know, it, so depending on the way that you're brought up, like you're, you're kind of conditioned to maybe see sex as like something that's very secretive and shameful. And it sounds like, you know, to kind of get to a place where you feel so, where you are so comfortable with it, like that you probably were in an environment where that was, that was like, it was a very sex positive environment. Is that right? Yeah, I I mean, it wasn't it wasn't sex negative, <laughs> but it was never I can't actually remember ever having the talk with my mom, but she never limited my access to books. So I would just be buying up all the books on changing bodies, relationships, and then, you know, the tween books you get as a young woman and then magazines <laughs> as I got older. So I just always had access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it really wasn't a topic like we discussed over the dinner table, but I mean, she had to know when I'm coming with a stack of seven books to the checkout lane, <laughs> <And she's laughs> reading the titles. I mean, she probably had some 
context clues. But yeah, it was it was not a sex negative poem, but it wasn't something that we like discussed out in the open, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. It kind of reminds me, do you watch I'm sure you've seen the, the show sex education on Netflix. Like, or yeah, <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminds me of like, you know, just the way that that kid, everyone went, everyone goes to the kid for the advice and stuff. <laughs> like that sounds like mm-hmm. maybe what your role was a little bit when you were growing up. Um, yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what inspired you then to write playing without a partner? Uh, I was actually connected with a publisher through a mutual friend and I had been wanting to write a book for a long time. And I said, Hey, you know, I'm an aspiring author because I was always a writer. I've written for many publications, but you can't say author until you have a book. So I was like, I want to write a book. You know, do you have any topics you'd like a new author, you know, take a crack at? And they're like, well, we're kind of thinking about this like book about like single sexuality. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. That's my life. Go on. And so... (laughs) Um, I wrote a sample chapter and it was a great fit. And I was like, wow, this is like literally my life story. And also too, all the bad experiences and dating faux pas and mistakes I made. I always told my friends, I'm like, this will be a good chapter in the book. And now I had a place for these stories to live. <laughs> so it's a fun mix of both my personal and professional side all into one cohesive platform. So it was like, again, a natural fit. Like, this is, oh, me, I'm the single sexologist. <laughs> yeah. And like, who would you say this book is for then? It is geared towards single people. But literally, the first half of the book is just really building you up and knowing that you have all the amazing, awesome self worth and happiness and gratitude that can all come from within. So even if you are partnered, the first half will definitely help you wherever you're at and whatever relationship status you're in, because it's just about realizing you're so powerful on your own. You don't need outside validation, how to cultivate that, you know, just confidence, how to have great sexual energy with yourself, not seeking it out with a partner and just, you know, putting your own oxygen mask on first, like making sure, you know, you're amazing. You don't need anything else. You can, you can have someone else, but you don't need them. So just, Mm -hmm. just making you feel like you have a solid foundation to build whatever relationship, whether that's single with yourself or with a partner, you have a great place to start from. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it is, it is quite, you know, like uplifting and, and empowering the way that you've written it. I'm curious to know, like, what do you see are, what do you see as being like the most harmful messages or harmful cultural messages around being single? I think it's seen as like, I think I actually wrote this, like the scarlet S, like you say you're single or like I was at a wedding this past weekend and I was like one of the few people who wasn't there with a partner. And it's just like, it's, you know, like, oh, as if like marriage is something everyone aspires to, which that's great if you want that. And it's great if you don't want that. I mean, I would like to be partnered one day, but I'm not like rolling around just lamenting in my bed. Like, when is it going to be my turn? When am I going to find my person? you know, I'm just okay. I'm single now. How can I live my best life as a single person? But I think the cultural perception is that single people are like second class citizens. Like, oh, one, you'll find him one day. Don't worry. There's a lot of nice men here to connect you with. Like, no, no, I'm not like trying to find a piece to fit in with me. I'm a whole piece. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I'll just, I'll find the right person whenever they come around. So I think it's seen as like, you know, sadness, but we look at this too, the statistics of like what relationships, almost half of marriages end in divorce. So it's like, you all think that the end all be all is marriage, but they don't work out all the time. So. Right. Right. Yeah. I I sort of think back on like all of the things that influenced 
my view on relationships as a child. And I think about all the kind of movies and TV shows, and they're all centered around developing some kind of relationship. And that, you know, especially like kind of being like a, you know, female character sort of being like saved by the relationship, you know what I mean? Like, that's kind of like the end of the story is now she has a relationship and she is complete. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and it's something that I never really thought to unpack or to think about in that way. But I feel like it's just this message around like, you're not complete unless you have that, that ending or that relationship, which is just so incredibly harmful. And I think that ties into, you know, our sense of self worth and feeling like we need to be like validated and loved in order to feel totally uh, worthy. Mm -hmm, For sure. So how like, what is your advice to someone who is struggling with that? Like, how do you overcome the belief that your life isn't complete or fulfilled unless you have a partner? I think journaling is a really valuable exercise you can do throughout your whole life. But especially if you're having these feelings of like, I just need a partner, like, I feel like my life is like stymied and all this stuff, you know, would be better if I had a partner. Actually articulate the reasons why, like write down the reasons why you think being in a relationship would make your life better. And once you see it on paper, maybe that can help you like pinpoint the real cause. Like, are you worried about like financial instability or like insecurity? Or are you worried about like not having access to air quotes, good sex? Like once you see the things that are making you like antsy about having a relationship, see what you can do on your own to work on those. So maybe, maybe you pick up a side hustle because you're like, I wish I had more money to do more stuff. Or like, I wish... I could have better sex. Listen, sometimes you're your own best sex partner most of the time. So (laughs) we have a lot of information in the book on how to pleasure yourself better than any partner can. So, you know, but there's a lot of things you can do to help mitigate those feelings. But also know, too, that those feelings are valid. Don't try to suppress them and be like, no, no, it's fine. Feel the feelings for sure. But don't lament in them. Say, okay, here's what the facts are. What can I do to improve my situation? Mm-hmm. One thing I find people really struggle with is this notion of like a timeline, you know, like I think it's like, especially when someone kind of crosses over into their thirties or something, they, they start to almost, you know, panic or think like, Oh God, like I have to find somebody. Yeah. What's, I mean, guess, what's your response to that? Yeah. I mean, I totally get that. That's the narrative we see in popular media, movies, storylines. Like, I mean, I'm in my thirties, I'm still single, but the, I think if we were to pull like, a hundred random people on the street. And we said, what's the like adult timeline? They'd be like, go to college, get a job, date someone, get married, buy a house, have two kids. I'm pretty sure a vast majority of the people we pulled would say some kind of, you know, iteration of that, as opposed to like my situation, go to college, buy a house, (laughs) get a graduate degree, stay single into your thirties. Like, you know, (laughs) There's not only one way to have a life. There's a lot of different ways to have a life. And there's not, we're not playing a board game. (laughs) You know, there's not an order of operations here. Like this isn't baking. We're living life. So there's a lot of different ways to have a life. Yeah, totally, totally. I know it's it's just like that script that you're that we're given. It's like, okay, here's the here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to follow. And um, yeah, I just I think it it just it can create like so much doubt in people's minds. And like, you wouldn't never want to rush into something just because of a timeline. Like, <laughs> that was the worst way to find a relationship, I would think. Mm-hmm. But people still feel like that, which is super sad. Or like I had a couple, they were like talking to me about just what things people say to them. And they always say, when are you going to start a family? When are you going to start a family? 
And I'm like, you're already a family. It's the two of you and your dog. Like that's, that's a family. But in people's minds, that's like, no, when you have kids, kids make a family. And it's like, there's so many iterations of family and not just one kind of, you know, way we see on TV. <laughs> so just yes. the language people, people use, I'm just like, ugh, no, yes. we don't like that. <laughs> Yes, yes. And I, I think there's probably still like a real gap in terms of having representation of just different lifestyles on, you know, in popular media too. Like it still kind of follows that same trajectory of like narrative. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So in your book, you talk about like some of the things not to do to lead a fulfilling life as a single person. I'm curious to know, like, are any, are there any that you just kind of want to speak to today that I, cause I thought those were really great. Yeah, I think a lot of people get caught up when they worry about the future. Um, short of you being a magician or some kind of clairvoyant person, you don't know what the future holds. So really worrying about the future doesn't do you any good because it's kind of like a fruitless ex- exercise. So try to live in the present and, you know, don't lament so much. Just try to live in the present and just see how you can live your best life. And also to me being a single person, don't have comparisonitis when you look at other people and say like, oh, their life has progressed to such a level. I'm not there yet. When's it going to happen to me? Hey, they might be looking at you being like, wow, she has all the freedom. (laughs) She can do whatever she wants. She can eat ice cream out of the fridge or out of the freezer at 3 a.m. And no one's going to say anything to her. You know, everyone's normal looks different. So don't have to don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that there. Like what what have you found to be some of the things that you love about being single? I love that I can just do, I mean, I'm a big cook person. So I love that I can just start baking bread at 9 a.m. or uh, 9 p.m. and just, you know, go until the wee hours of the morning. I can just pick up and go anywhere. If I want to go, you know, take a weekend trip up north. I live in Michigan. It's super beautiful, especially in the summertime. I can just pick up and go do that. I don't have to coordinate my schedule with anybody else. If, you know, I don't have to wait and say, oh, let me talk to my partner and see what they're doing. I can be like, yes or no. I mean, sometimes I wish I could be like, let me get back to you. Talk to my partner. But I can't use that excuse because they're like, it's just you, Megan. So you have to confer with. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I would say I could sleep across my whole bed, but I can't because I have a big dog and he is the master of the bed. So I just take my little corner and I'm appreciative. (laughs) But yeah, I can watch whatever I want on TV and just, you know, I can come home and just have peace. I'm all alone. So, I mean, those are some nice things. Obviously, having a partner is nice, too. But there's, you know, pros and cons on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to know, like, um, you know, with COVID sort of having been this past year and a half, I found that some of my clients who are single found it more, like, particularly hard. What was your experience with it and with that? Like, was that was that harder for you because, yeah, just not having, like, as many interactions or things like that? Fortunately for me, I think I was very lucky in that I lived with my sister. So we always had companionship, even though we didn't get along all the time. But also having my dog was super clutch, both for companionship and like getting me outside and just, you know, having some sense of normalcy. And I'm a big gardener. So that was, again, really, really great to do uh, during that time as well. And also, you know, writing a book (laughs) that kept me busy. But I think people who maybe do live alone, who didn't have access to someone in their family group or their close friend group to, you know, talk to, physically see or hug, or who were stuck inside and couldn't do these things, I could see how that could be really, really challenging. Fortunately, we have, you know, social media, we have phones, video chatting, um, FaceTiming, Skyping. That was also super helpful. My best friend lives out of state. And we're used to just conversing via the phone and texting each other. So that kind of stayed normal. So it was no like big shift for me. But 
Um, I had friends who were used to like going out all the time, going to brunches and lunches and co-working and taking weekend trips. And that was really, what did my friend call it? She called it um, far sickness. Instead of like homesick, you're far sick. Like I want to get away. I miss being away. So yeah, I mean, for me personally, it was it was okay. But for others, I know they really, really struggled with it. Yeah, what I sort of hear is like, you know, you had some companionship, which I think was so important. And when you don't have that, it's like trying to just make make that like trying to find that companionship and connection and whatever kind of circumstance you can find it in just to try to make the best out of the situation. Mm -hmm. I also had some friends who started relationships during uh, the lockdown and now are still in them. So I mean, anything could happen at any time. So you never know what's coming around the corner. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So I wanted to talk about something that popped out to me in your book. You said virginity is a social construct. I would love for you to speak to that. Yeah, the ultimate fake news, virginity. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, this is something that was created by society. There's no... Okay, so let's just look at, you know, men. What is their test for virginity? Do you yeah. have an answer for that, or no, how do, uh, no, no, I don't. <laughs> we just we just trust them. It's their word, right? So they're they're instantly debunked. <laughs> so there's no medical test. There's no physiological change. People often cite hymen, but like, listen, we ride bikes, ride horses, we hit a tree branch, climb a tree the wrong way, our hymen breaks. Sir, that's not a definitive way to say like, oh no, she's a virgin for sure. Um, it's made up. It's made up to control sexuality because the only time that that matters is when we're talking about like, oh, are they a virgin? We don't want them to be carrying someone else's baby and making sure my daughter's pure here, you know, take her out of your protection. I mean, some cultures um, carry what chicken blood to bed. So the next day when they hang the sheets, which what who's doing that, you know, to prove like, oh, no, she bled on her wedding night. Ah, must be a virgin. Like this is nonsense. Hot nonsense. So yeah, virginity is fake. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 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 So like, was that something that you kind of learned? I'm just super curious. Did, is that something that you learned in school or is that something that you figured out like kind of on your own, like prior to that, when you were just diving into all the literature and, and, and um, really getting into it? Oh, no, I definitely learned that in grad school because I mean, growing up, I, I was always like, tell me about your first time. Well, your first time, what? Ultimately, they mean like PV sex, but like first time could be anything, you know, and then we get to the whole like, what counts as real sex, oral sex, blowjobs, those don't count. Well, oral sex has sex in the title, therefore it is sex. So it's just, you know, the culture believes that virginity is a penis penetrating a vagina for the first time. Listen, penises aren't that special. They're not going to change you suddenly to be like, no, I've been deflowered. What? All these weird language things. And also, too, sometimes people's first sexual encounter isn't great. So if we're going to start saying, like, your first sexual encounter is the one that matters the most, we're going to be putting a lot of people who are sexual assault and rape victims in a really bad place to say, well, my first time was not consensual, wasn't great. You, If you want to use the terminology of virginity and share about your first time, you can disclose as much as you want to. That's fine. But you can also choose when you say your first encounter was. Maybe it's your first encounter that was actually good. I'd like to remember that one over a bad one. So it's just all about what identifies and feels best for you. So if someone is asking about air quotes virginity, I'd rather say, when was your sexual debut? When did you first do blank activity? Because for me, when they're like, oh, yeah, you know sex. And I'm like, what kind? Manual, oral, digital, PV, <laughs> kinky. Tell me. <laughs> 
Oh, I have more questions. Yeah, that like really, I was like, whoa, that just like blew my mind open because <laughs> again, just really the way that I was raised, the way that I was taught was just, it was super, you know, just like heteronormative through and also like religious. And so it was totally about, you know, like you save yourself, you save your virginity for, (laughs) and so I just, I love everything you just said there. I feel like the headline of this whole thing is going to be the ultimate fake news virginity. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to get a lot of angry people in the comments. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Do you, so I'm curious to know, you you know, do you still feel like there's a lot of shame around around masturbation for uh, for people who identify as as women? Mostly, I would say. Do you still feel like there's a lot of shame around that? Do you find that with your with your clients and the work you do? I think generally, yes, I do. Um, when I do see people, I'm speaking for groups. It's usually they're there voluntarily, so I don't think there's a lot of people who are like uncomfortable with sex coming to see me talk. But moreover, I think the population still has a problem with it. I mean, if we look to the feminine hygiene aisle in grocery stores or like um, Target or something, there's so many products targeted, you know, at like making you smell better. Like no, vaginas don't smell like Mountain Spring or Bali Sunset or whatever. Like we have to normalize so much about what are normal vaginal odors. You don't have to smell like a bouquet of, you know, freesia flowers. And also we're not dirty and like, like, you know, don't look down there. Don't touch down there. You're dirty down there. But it's like, then you want us to like open up and share it with a partner. When are you going to pop up babies? It's the, the messaging is so mixed up on so many different levels that I think unless we get clear education from the beginning to help women grow up normalizing vagina smell like vagina, you don't have to be douching. You don't have to worry about constantly thinking that you have a smell or an odor or you need to be using these sprays or products, looking at your vulva, understanding your anatomy, knowing what the baseline normal is. So when something does go amiss, you can identify that and you're not feeling shame because you're like, this discharge is not normal. What's it look like? I should go see a gynecologist because I've got a yeast infection, but there's still so much shame and stigma just on that alone. So then to say, hey, that thing you're uncomfortable with, you don't like looking at or touching because you think it's dirty. It can also give you great pleasure if you touch it. It's like, ah, I'm not doing that. That sounds gross. I don't want to touch that. <laughs> Even though the potential is so amazing for pleasure, the messaging is still so negative that they're just like, nah, it can't be good. <laughs> everyone, everyone, it's not good. Yeah. Like, how do you suggest people kind of over overcome that shame? Because I think it's like, you know, I, I actually pulled this quote from your book. I think you said like, it's easy to say, to just say like, go masturbate, but sometimes getting around those mental blocks requires unlearning what we have been told by society, family, or other cultural or religious institutions. Yeah. 100%. If you're someone who's listening to this and that's you where you're just like, I can't even, I don't even know where to begin with that. Begin with just taking a look, get a little hand mirror and just take a look and get to know your vulva. That's completely normal. It's healthy. And once you can identify your anatomy, give it a touch. And you don't have to think about grabbing toys or anything else. Just touch it for curiosity purposes. And maybe that's all you do the first time. Revisit this activity and explore more and more. Obviously, hotspots are, you know, clitoris in the vagina, G-spot, maybe you want to have a little bit of anal play. Hey, that's all good. That all comes in time and with your level of comfort. So the more you get in touch with your vulva and understand what she looks like, what feels good, what doesn't, then you can start to explore with different touches, percussive tapping, maybe some rubbing, 
Lube is your friend. Lube is super great. Maybe you want to venture out and get a toy. That's totally normal, safe, and healthy too. And explore with that. And so just as your confidence builds, the more knowledge you have, the easier it will be to experience these really awesome sexual feelings. But baby steps, just take a look. Start there and see how you can grow from there. Yeah, that reminded me of how I feel like there's like shame around that because of, you know, what we sort of see presented to us in like, you know, in like, you know, pornography or, you know, and anything like that where every, every Volvo kind of looks the same way. (laughs) And yeah, so what's your response to that? Like, how do you overcome that kind of shame, I guess, too, just around like, oh my God, like, this is what it looks like. Like, this is, is this weird? Like, is this unattractive? Like, you know, that's something that I feel like a lot of people would kind of think about and struggle with too. Yeah, that's a super good point. In pornography, there's a curated look. These are actors and actresses who are being cast for roles. So not saying that their genitalia isn't real. I mean, they're real, but they're looking for a certain type and look and aesthetic. When it comes to real people, there's all kinds of iterations. There's different colors, hairstyles, hair distributions. You could have, you know, bigger outer lips or sorry, bigger inner lips than your outer lips. Maybe they're asymmetrical. Maybe there's color gradient changes. I mean, when we look at people who are doing like bleaching and stuff because they want their skin to all be the same color down there, I'm like, no, leave it. It's fine. Uh, just, just know there's variation. There's a really awesome book called Volva 101. And it has 101 vulvas, full color photos in this book. And it shows you the diversity that's out there. And that's fantastic. I've brought that so many times when I'm speaking. And people just are like wild about it because this is the first time they've seen real depictions of vulva diversity. So pornography is great to see vulvas and other sexual acts go on. That's great. That's not the purpose of it, though, because it's not an educational source. So looking at this, it's fantastic because you get to see the variation up close and know that all of these that are depicted are normal. They're fine. They're good. So you don't think that like, oh, no, mine doesn't look like that. So there must be something wrong. No, no, nothing wrong. Yeah, that's so that's so good. I'll include the name of that book in the show notes because it's kind of like we talked about up front, like you talked about curating your social media feed to, you know, just expose like to have more body diversity and whatnot. And that's something that like we talk about all the time here. And it's but you know, you don't see the vulva, like you don't see any kind of variation in genitalia, because all the pictures are obviously people wearing clothes for the most part. So I think that's super important, because that's a part of ourselves. And I think that we can hold a lot of shame about that and be self conscious about the appearance of that. And so I love that there's a resource out there that has that diversity because I feel like that could be super helpful for some people. Mm -hmm. I I wish that was taught in school, but I feel like at least in the U.S., any kind of nudity is seen as inherently sexual, which is not the case because I think if we had these photos shown as children are aging, they would know, okay, yeah, I'm normal. This is fine. But that's like, I don't know, 2080, (laughs) maybe. I can't see anytime soon people being like, oh yeah, we'll approve this book to be shown in the classroom, even though I'd be like, hey, Bodies are bodies, but I don't know. We're not there yet. (laughs) I think it it should be integral for everyone to see, you know, like, like everyone, because, and I know I'm, I'm speaking to this through like a bit of a heteronormative lens again, but for, you know, for 
cis like het men like that would be so important for them to see <laughs> like because they're all they're seeing is what they find in pornography and um and like that's that's not okay they need to see the diversity too yeah there's i just got a book uh i'm actually looking on my shelf right now i believe it's called manhood yes manhood the bare reality i just got this it's a book again with full color photos of penis diversity okay. and yeah manhood the bare reality it's wonderful because again we're seeing a very curated sampling of penises in pornography not saying those penises aren't real but that's a little subset of the vast majority that are available and not on the market but like <laughs> available in the world and so if you don't see yours represented in pornography that can make you maybe feel insecure when your penis is actually totally normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So helpful. So uh, one last thing I just wanted to kind of ask you about was, you know, one of the common things that I find when I'm doing work with people is really helping them to reconnect with their body and like really connecting with their needs and their desires and their feelings. And so, you know, what would your recommendation be for someone who feels disconnected from sexual pleasure in their body? Yeah, I would just say take it really, really old school and back to basics. Have time, take time out of your calendar and you know, block off time like this is time for me to just relax and play. Um, make a comfortable spot. Maybe it's the couch. Maybe it's your favorite like big squashy chair or like the bed and just get really comfortable. Set the whole mood so you can have comfort on all your levels. Maybe it's, you know, light a nice candle, low light so your eyes are comfortable, nose is happy and your body's comfortable and just explore your body. Just touch it with no expectations for an outcome. You're just exploring on your own and just seeing what sensations come up and you're exploring how, you know, maybe the inside of your arm skin by your wrist, that's super thin. It feels nice when it's like lightly stroked, maybe like a little bit of nails on that and just feel those sensations and see how your body reacts to them. And again, no pressure because if you have that pressure to perform or you have a pressure to have an expected outcome, that's not good. Your body doesn't want to respond to that. But if you just go in with curiosity and just see how your body responds, you might surprise yourself and be like, oh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of getting turned on. And if not, that's okay too. Definitely revisit this exercise. And hopefully, eventually, you'll start to feel sensations and be like, oh, this just feels like I feel embodied. I feel in my body and it feels good. And then again, build from there. There's no rush. There's no timeline. And there's always things you can do to help, you know, build those feelings and reconnect with your body. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, you know, as someone who solely focuses around helping people with body image, like I feel like that that is such a great thing to do to, you know, foster a more healthy body image within yourself too, is to connect with that. And, you know, to see like how amazing your body is and, and to become more embodied, because what I find is like the majority of people I work with, they're up in their heads all day, and they're completely disconnected from their bodies. So mm-hmm. using this as a way to kind of like reconnect with that and become more embodied is is it can be so powerful. Yeah. And especially if you're having issues where you feel like, you want to change your body and you can change your body anytime. That's totally fine. Like that's not saying you can't do that. But if you're feeling like you're unhappy in the skin that you live in, reconnecting with your body and realizing how good it feels right now as it is, how much pleasure you can bring yourself with this body you air quotes don't like that kind of helps mend that bridge where you're like, okay, 
you know, this body is still good. I can still feel awesome sensations in this. I just had a, you know, really great masturbation session with this body. So it can't be all bad. I can't hate it. So that can be a really helpful healing tool to use too. Yeah, totally. I love it. I love it. Well, as we wrap things up here, it's been so helpful. I've loved, I've loved chatting with you. Can you tell everyone where they can find more of you and your book? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a really, really great conversation. People can find me at sexologistmegan.com and I'm at sexologistmegan on all the social media channels. Awesome. And where's your book? Is your book available just like online? Is that the best place to grab it? Yeah, book is available online wherever books are sold. So Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Books a Million, it's everywhere. <laughs> Great, fantastic. I'll I'll link to it in the show notes, and I just I loved reading it, and I uh, I think that you are talking about such important stuff. So I really really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Thank you so much, Megan. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. This is wonderful. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanen, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Summer Inanen. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts, search Eat the Rules, and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. 